Jenks, I'm sorry. Did did you really you you cook this steak? Well, yeah. I had a bunch of people over and they couldn't believe that I had just presented them with an unbelievable meal. And it's really thanks to Omaha Steaks, which for a limited time is offering my listeners the chance to get an incredible deal. If you go to omahasteaks.com and enter code WRH into the search bar, you will get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. Originally $195, now only $49.99. That's insane. Order now and you'll get four hand-cut aged to tenderness top sirloin steaks, two savory premium pork chops, four chicken fried steaks, four Omaha Steaks burgers, four snappy kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, oh man, I'm getting hungry, four perfectly browned potatoes au gratin, four made-from-scratch caramel apple tartlets. They're delicious. Plus, get four more burgers for free. The burgers are actually my favorite. Omaha Steaks is a fifth-generation family-owned company with over 100 years of experience delivering perfectly aged beef hand-cut by master butchers in Omaha. Again, get this limited-time package for only $49.99. Man, that's crazy. When you go to omahasteaks.com, type WRH in the search bar, and add the family gift package to your cart. This is vital. Make sure you put WRH in the search bar before you do anything else. Don't wait. This offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com, type WRH in the search bar to send the Omaha Steaks family gift package today. Before we get officially started, this show is at its best when listeners like you provide feedback and insight on our episodes. You can do this by reaching out to me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Andrew Jenks, or sign up for our contributor program, which is going amazing, at jenkspod.com slash contributors. What really happened is produced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who's the man, Danny Garcia, and Brian Gewertz, who's incredibly underrated. If you like the episode, we'd love a rating and review if you have the time. Do me a favor. Think about a woman in your life that you love, you love to death. Maybe it's your sister, your wife, maybe it's somebody you don't even know but really look up to. A woman you admire. For me, it's my mom. Now imagine you at four years old. Your mom is in her mid-twenties. Mom has to go fight in a war. Actually, she doesn't have to. In fact, most of the other moms are not. It may be the case your mom is actually the only woman fighting. I don't know why your mom is doing this. Maybe it's a need for an adventure or maybe it's a noble act. She's an able warrior and feels an obligation. In due time, friends and family will call your mom Brave Woman. Capital B, capital W, Brave Woman. Brave Woman is trotting on her horse along with her fellow soldiers. They are battling to save their homeland, which is under attack. Brave Woman's own brother is also in the army and fighting alongside her. At some point during this battle, Brave Woman sees something in the distance. A fellow warrior has fallen off his horse. The man is now doing whatever he can to avoid being shot and killed. But that is near impossible. There's nothing he can do. Sooner than later, he'll be dead. But Brave Woman rides straight towards where this man is, straight into the middle of the battle, where all of the gunshots are being fired in the direction of this man. The man is her brother. If he gets killed, 
she's not going to watch it as it happens. Brave Woman rides right by her brother, giving him the ability to grab one hand onto the side of her saddle. He uses his other arm to grab the neck of her horse to keep himself up. She takes them away into safe territory and then goes back to fighting. The battle would become known simply as Where the Girl Saved Her Brother. A week later, Brave Woman found herself again fighting off people trying to take her land. Only this time, it was a battle against a group of men led by one of the great generals, one of the great leaders in American history. It was at this battle that he, this once-in-a-generation general, was killed. The United States of America, from the small towns to the big cities, mourned, but also just couldn't believe it. After fighting for the Union in the Civil War, after avoiding death time and time again, over 16 of his horses had been shot and killed. Was it even possible? There were endless and contradictory reports. How did Custer even die? For over 150 years, people have attempted to understand who killed Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer. Very recent evidence, evidence that most of the world has overlooked, suggests we may know who. And it may be that mother in her mid-twenties. Brave woman. What really happened? General George Armstrong Custer was from Ohio. Although some people dispute it, most agree he was about 5'11", which was quite tall when the average height for men at the time was around 5'6". Custer was muscular, fit, and an incredible horseman. Custer went to West Point. That's not to say he had the qualifications to get in. However, after his self-confidence impressed a local congressman, the man made sure Custer was accepted. By the end of his four years at West Point, I assume almost everyone knew him. He held a few records, not necessarily the records mom and dad would want. He had collected 726 demerits, which gave him the worst conduct record in the history of West Point. When grades came in after the final semester, George Armstrong Custer was last in his class. But Custer seemed okay with this. He once said something to the effect of, Either be at the top or make sure you're at the absolute bottom. Both are tough to achieve. What was also noticeable, regardless of grades or infractions, he had talent. West Point graduates would say that when he applied himself, Custer was the best. In my research, although there are a ton of examples of Custer's rise to becoming a heroic Union fighter, there is one day that stands out. It's the Battle of Gettysburg. The future of the Union Army and the outcome of the Civil War is at play. It's the third day of the battle. A Confederate cavalry is planning an attack. And this isn't just any cavalry. It's led by Jeb Stuart, one of Robert E. Lee's most trusted men. Stuart leads a badass group known as the Invincibles. The Invincibles attack the Union to overrun the right flank of their army. Stuart and the Invincibles then take position behind a fence. They're able to shoot at the Union Army at point-blank range. And so the Union falls back, except for one cavalry, which is ordered to counterattack. A soldier, wearing a black velvet jacket with yellow hair curled down to his shoulders, rides to the front. It's Custer. He looks back at the 1st Michigan Cavalry and shouts to the men, Come on, you Wolverines! With that, they charge into battle. One veteran said afterwards, 
Many of the horses were turned end over end and crushed their riders beneath them. Custer's own horse is shot, so Custer takes over the horse of a bugler soldier, a man who uses a musical instrument to send orders, and Custer continues to battle. Remember, over the course of his career, at least 16 of Custer's horses were shot during battles. Not only do the Union troops break down the fence, but it takes three of Jeb's brigades to stop Custer and his men from advancing. It's a pivotal moment for the Union Army and the future of America. George Armstrong Custer was 23 years old. The Boy General, they called him. On April 9, 1865, General Robert E. Lee surrendered to General Ulysses S. Grant. Custer sat nearby. As a gift from the Army, he was given the table in which the peace agreement was signed. Custer wasn't just part of history, he had helped shape history. But make no mistake, he wasn't saying, oh, you guys, thank you, but please, enough about me. Custer loved the attention. He had always intended, marked one historian, on being famous. He once said, there are far more statues of soldiers out there than there are of civilians. But we gotta be fair. There are different ways to become famous. Custer wanted to serve his country. Custer was also keenly aware of his branding. From the beginning of his time in office, he made sure, regardless of what happened on the battlefield, that people literally couldn't miss him. Custer was familiar with the knight errant, the legendary figures of medieval chivalric romance, and he used this as inspiration to create his own modern-day outfit. When Custer was first given his military uniform, he replaced it with loose-fitting velvet coats, oftentimes golden coats and velvet pants. He wore this huge sombrero, much wider than any standard hats. He also would put a feather in his cap. He grew his hair long, falling to his shoulders, and dyed it, a golden-red sort of color. For good measure, he perfumed his hair with cinnamon oil. Some said he looked like a circus performer, a freak, but his daring reputation on the battlefield shut up most of the haters. And if you're thinking the outfits put a target on his back, well, yeah, it did. But it didn't seem to make a difference, at least for Custer. The men underneath him fighting alongside him were known to get killed at an enormously high rate. This could be because so many bullets, so many attempts at Custer's life were missed and hit others. A larger reason is likely because Custer was so courageous, others say reckless, that he was oftentimes leading his men into tough opposition. Was he lucky? Well, yeah, sure. And he didn't seem to shy away from this. When people started to say he had Custer's luck, Custer came to like the name and believed in it. Despite it being known as the bloodiest war, legend has it that Custer, who fought in the war for its entirety, left without a scratch. Because he made it out alive and well, time and time again, the press fell in love with the relatively young man. On August 22, 1864, a New York Tribune article commented, future writers of fiction will find in Custer most of the quality which go to make up a first-class hero. And damn, they were right. There are endless movies, TV shows, books, songs, paintings, you name it, on George Armstrong Custer. Over the course of just 20 years, in 1909, 1912, 1913, 1921, and three in 1926. To be clear, as time went on, 
Some films had Custer as the hero, some had him as the villain, others had him somewhere in between. But it wasn't just his life on the battlefield that got attention. Herman Viola is the curator emeritus of the Smithsonian Institution and former director of the Smithsonian's National Anthropological Archives. He's written several incredible books, and one of his books, I don't know else how to describe it other than saying it's really a once-in-a-generation book. It's called Little Bighorn Remembered, The Untold Indian Story of Custer's Last Stand. So I reached out to him, and during our conversation, he pointed out the different sides to Custer, including the fact that... He really was a very charismatic person. Of course, he was lucky to be married to this beautiful woman, the Jackie Kennedy of her time. And so it was a nice flamboyant kind of couple. And, you know, the American people, you know, kind of looked up to him. When working on stories that go way back, I go to libraries or newspaper databases to track down old papers. I kept reading about Custer grabbing the attention of the media, but where was the proof? It didn't take long to find. During the Civil War, Harper's Weekly was the most widely read journal in the United States. On the cover of the March 19, 1864 edition, I discovered none other than Custer himself. He is leading a charge with a group of men behind him. Men, might I add, that don't look too thrilled to be with him. But not Custer. His hair blowing in the wind, a neatly combed mustache. He has his sword pointed out towards the distance in one direction. The direction he seems intent on going. His horse, perhaps more sensible, is trying to go in the other direction, the direction that is likely more safe. Even his men and their horses in the backdrop, once you look closely, are positioned towards the safer direction. Historian Michael A. Elliott said, One of the things that is remarkable about Custer is the number of photos of him. He understood there was a new kind of visual imagery at work in society and that it could be manipulated. But make no mistake, Custer was a great strategist and soldier. If he wasn't good at what he did, no number of photos would place him in the history books. While soldiers would get mad at him for unnecessarily putting their lives on the line, it should also be noted that in many of the history books I read, it was pointed out that Custer never asked anyone to do anything he would not. George Armstrong Custer wanted to be remembered, and he succeeded, perhaps beyond his wildest imagination. Meet Chris Flannery, executive producer of the show. He has an incredible beard. He's a tough New Yorker. He has that raspy Ed Burns type of voice. Women love him, although he's married to a beautiful woman. But his security is vital. He's an important guy. But in all seriousness, security is important, uh, not just Chris's, and so is your family's and your own. Ring's mission is to make neighborhoods safer. You might already know about their smart video doorbells and cameras that protect millions of people everywhere. They're incredibly impressive. Ring helps you stay connected to your home anywhere in the world. So if there's a package delivery or surprise visitor, you'll get an alert and be able to see, hear, and speak to them all from your phone. That's thanks to the HD video, damn, it is HD video, and two-way audio features on Ring devices. As a listener, you have a special offer on a Ring starter kit available right now. With a video doorbell and motion-activated floodlight cam, the starter kit has everything you need to start building a Ring of security around your home. Oh, that's why they're called Ring, a Ring of security. I never really got that. Just go to ring.com slash wrh. That's ring.com slash W-R-H.
Robert E. Lee surrendered to the Union Army on April 9, 1865. Three years later, in 1868, the Northern Cheyenne, Lakota, and their allies signed the Treaty of Fort Laramie with the U.S. government. A big part of the agreement was the Native American tribes would keep their land, including the Black Hills, which is in present-day Nebraska, North and South Dakota, Montana, and Wyoming, and others would not be permitted to trespass. But when the U.S. government realized there was gold there, they demanded that the Native American tribes sell it back to them. But this was their land. The Native Americans didn't want to sell it back. And so the U.S. government attacked in a series of battles, which became known as the Great Sioux War of 1876. Now, some may say, whoa, 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 there were other reasons the U.S. wanted the land. And that's true. But after attempting to convince myself otherwise, I like how the prolific author and historian Paul Hedrin put it. Custer's official mission was to cite a new military post. Unofficially, but equally clear, was his intention to report on the presence of gold. Confirmation of gold in the Black Hills brought a rush of miners and ultimately triggered the Great Sioux War. As we've learned time and time again, always follow the money. I got in touch with Richard D. DeSiri. He wrote a mesmerizing book titled Dull Knife, Let Us Make a New Way. One reason, and I just want to point this out, he wrote the book was he realized after teaching history how many textbooks in schools had just so much wrong. He since developed programs to help people experiencing multi-generational historical traumas and assists with new narratives, overlooked facts that honor the sacrifices previous generations have made. Like all of the guests I've spoken with on this episode, I've come to really admire him. Said Desiri, There's no status in being rich if you're Northern Cheyenne. It, it, it is, um, it, power comes from, um, from serving the community and, and, and helping each other out and, and supporting each other. One of the most famous battles of this war is called the Battle of Rosebud. At least, that's what I thought it was called at first. It's June 17th, 1876. Both sides are led by men who would become legends. General George Crook of Ohio and war leader of the Oglala Lakota, Crazy Horse. The two forces fight in an area called Rosebud Creek. General Crook orders at least five different companies of soldiers to separate and fight from different angles, mainly coming from the north and south. Throughout the battle, the Lakota and Cheyenne are retreating only to hit the U.S. soldiers from higher ground. In fact, although there are conflicting reports, most historians seem to agree that the Cheyenne and Lakota never even attempt to go on the attack. They know the longer range of the American government's rifles. Crook tells one of his captains, Captain Mills, to advance more forcefully than others. And so Mills and his men charge the Lakota. Mills then witnesses something special. Only in her mid-twenties, this is where a brave woman saw her brother on the verge of death and came to his rescue. Now, at this point, she is not named Brave Woman, and so I'll call her by her name at the time, Buffalo Calf Road Woman. Her brother's name is Comes in Sight. His horse crashes headfirst to the ground. He gets to his feet, but bullets are coming towards him from every direction. The army shoot to kill Comes in Sight and begin scalping him. But Buffalo Calf Road Woman rides down that rocky slope towards him, bullets passing by her. Comes in sight, grabs Buffalo Calf Road Woman's saddle with one hand 
and grabs the horse's neck with the other. She holds her six-shooter pistol. One can only imagine she is quite brilliant with a gun. In fact, if you have the chance, read Thundersticks by David J. Silverman. You'll learn just how innovative and deadly Native Americans were with their guns. Anson Mills, the captain who saw all of this, would go on to write a book that I think is worth reading. It's hard to come by. It's titled My Story. In it, he says, of the Native Americans, these Indians were the most hideous, every one being painted in most hideous colors and designs, stark naked, some of the horses being also painted. In charging up towards us, they exposed a little of their person, hanging on with one arm around the neck and one leg over the horse, firing and lancing from underneath the horse's necks, so that there were no part of the Indian at which we could aim. He adds, Their shouting and personal appearance was so hideous. Now, if the sentence ended there, then this would seem like a bad thing. A hideous appearance and a hideous shouting. But obviously, it's not a fashion contest, it's war. Mills would continue. So hideous that it's terrified our horses more than our men and rendered our horses almost uncontrollable before we dismounted and placed them behind the rocks. The Native Americans were masters, magicians with their horses. When Mills says their shouting was hideous, what that really means is they were quite literally speaking to the horses, shouting in a way that rendered the opponent's animals useless. Mills would conclude, the Indians proved then that they were the best cavalry soldiers on earth. Their like will never be seen again. Buffalo Calf Road Woman was one of these soldiers. She'd go on to fight again in a battle only one week later. She would once again prove to be essential in victory. After winning these two battles, and two, during the Great Sioux War, she would become known as Brave Woman. That first battle is not called the Battle of Rosebud to most Native Americans, but instead the battle the girl saved her brother. I've been studying this topic for this episode for months and wrote most of the episode over the course of the last few weeks. I sit at a high table desk. I go through many drafts and something I've realized is where you write really can make a difference. And I used to have this empty apartment, literally no furniture, a fridge wasn't even plugged in. And now I have article. They delivered this beautifully designed desk, a modern couch, and they did it for an amazing price, really. Everyone from my parents to a special someone have said, wow, your place is really brightening up. So nice thing about them, which I always like, the customers come first. They have a 30-day return policy, and they're just the best customer service in the business. Now, this part is the important part. Article is offering our listeners $50 off their first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash WRH. That's all it takes. Go to article.com slash WRH, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash WRH to get $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. This is where I want to introduce you to a wife and husband team, Rosemary and Joseph Aganito. I'd realized their work kept coming up in my research. They're not only brilliant historians, writers, teachers, and so much more, but they've been married for over 55 years. When I first met Ro uh, back at, oh, at graduate school gosh. in Niagara <laughs> back in the early 60s, I remember vividly we were both writing our master's thesis together, side by side, writing and writing and writing. I'd probably best not. Um, 
I think it's important, just one thing, I think too often, particularly women, tend to wrap their lives around a man negating their talent, their gifts. I spent 15 minutes after the interview continuing to question them on how I could find the love of my life. Rosemary is an incredible author. She's published nine books, many groundbreaking articles, and has lectured widely on women's history. Her husband, Dr. Joseph Aguinito, is also an award-winning author, has published three books as well as numerous popular and scholarly articles, and produced three documentaries, Underachievers. When reading in a book a small snippet about Buffalo Calf Road Woman, the couple decided they wanted to bring her story to life. Both have spent a lifetime uncovering history many have forgotten, and Rosemary in particular has spent much of her career focusing on women's history. We immersed ourselves in Cheyenne, printed oral history, and we interviewed elders. And then we, there's a great body of literature on the Cheyenne. We read rather extensively in order to place Buffalo Cat Road in context of Native or Cheyenne culture. We tried as much as we could to retrace her steps, you know, and to, to be at the actual places where she was. They went through every recorded account during the time period in which Buffalo Calf Road Woman was alive. They explored the Cheyenne National Archives, Smithsonian Institution, Yale University, University of Nebraska, Nebraska State Historical Society, Montana Historical Society, University of Oklahoma, Oklahoma State Historical Society, Southwest Museum Library, and dozens, if not hundreds, of other locations they thought could have information. Rosemary and Joe read newspaper accounts, the annual reports of the Secretary of War from 1876 to 1879, and went through any conceivable visual of what happened. After all, Cheyenne artists left what Rosemary and Joe reported were rich visual records of people's lives, culture, and military exploits. The wife and husband team unraveled some new material, but also concluded the best observers of Native American women, other Indian women, have left few records, and much of the documentation that has survived, narratives, interviews, pictures, official records, was recorded by men, Indian and white, and reflects their male-oriented view of the world. Dependent as we are on such limited and biased sources, it's not surprising that so much of Buffalo Calf Roadwoman's story has been lost, perhaps forever, to history. But as it turns out, not all of it is lost. Definitely not if the Aganitos have anything to do with it. Buffalo Calf Roadwoman, again, she'd go on to become also known as Brave Woman, was married to an extraordinary warrior. His name was Black Coyote. They fought together in two battles. The first was that Battle of Rosebud, also known as the battle where the girl saved her brother, in which they were able to hold back the U.S. government and Buffalo Calf Roadwoman saved her brother. Then, only a week later, they fought again, and this is important, this time in a battle called the Battle of Little Bighorn. They once again held back the forces attempting to take their land. The couple, along with their small daughter, then camped with their people in awful conditions. They had technically won both battles, but the United States government was infuriated. On November 25, 1876, Buffalo Calf Roadwoman, her family, and their community were sleeping when the U.S. government showed up. Rosemary told me, Black Coyote and her small daughter uh, camped with her people, and on a bitterly cold night, the army attacked, um, massacring men, women, and children. There were 40 dead, many critically wounded. 
uh, it, it was bitter cold and survivors fled, including Buffalo Calf Road and her family. But it was so bitterly cold that 11 babies froze that first night. So it was uh, quite a flight. At the time, Buffalo Calf Road was pregnant. Um, her family had lost everything. Most of the Cheyennes at that point gave up and surrendered, but Buffalo Calf Road and her family refused, and a small band stayed out. Uh, her second child was born then. Uh, but starving, um, they were forced to surrender. They had no choice. Uh, and so they, they went in to the reservation, only to find out that they would be forced south to Indian Territory in Oklahoma, and the captivity in the South was terrible. After a year, about 200 Cheyenne fled the reservation. They trekked 15,000 miles, mostly on foot, to get back to their homeland. It's demoralizing to think that during this entire time, the U.S. Army was pursuing them, trying to hunt them down. Eventually, two separate groups broke out. Rosemary said, Once they got north, the band split. One group decided to surrender. Uh, they thought, well, we've made our point. They'll let us stay now. The other group, which was the group that Buffalo Calf Road and her family were with, refused to go in. And so they spent the winter in the sand hills of Nebraska. Um, her husband, Black Coyote, who's a you know great warrior in his own right, during this period is becoming increasingly enraged uh, and bitter at whites and getting into fights. And during one fight, he killed a Cheyenne peacemaker and gets exiled. Buffalo Calf Road and a few others go with Black Coyote. Um, both groups, though, are very shortly captured and uh, taken to Fort Kehoe. Uh, Buffalo Calf Road contracted diphtheria and died. And Black Coyote, who was awaiting trial, um, committed suicide when he heard of her death. So that's basically the outline of what we know. Rosemary and Joe wanted to write a biography on Buffalo Calf Road Woman, but... And that really proved impossible. There are simply too many gaps in her life. And we ended up writing an article, an essay in True West back in the 80s, and uh, it's all of four long pages. And if you wanted to say, what are the facts of her life? Well, it's four long pages. That, that's not a biography. <laughs> so instead, they did something else. So there's a very important fact to know, which is that pretty much never do I walk anywhere and someone says, hey, man, what you're wearing, that looks nice. Where'd you get that? It happened. It happened. What really happened is the other day, someone stopped me and said, where'd you get that watch? And I got it at this incredible company, which is called Movement. Uh, their watches, believe it or not, are affordable. They start at just $95, which also surprised the person because they look like four or $500 watches, I guess. I don't know. They look like they're much more expensive. They have a clean design, minimal, and really just quality products. They've sold almost 2 million watches in over 160 countries. Movement did all of this hard work this holiday season in a lot of ways, so I guess you wouldn't really have to. And they made awesome gift boxes and packages. If you need help giving the perfect gift this season, but don't know where to start, the guys over at Movement Watches got your back. I actually got a watch from my mom last year, and she's still wearing it. That was huge. 
They've curated all of their favorite styles into special gift boxes for you, so you can absolutely be a hit this holiday season without the added stress. Ugh, it does get stressful. Get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmt.com slash wrh. Movement's launching new styles on their site all the time. Check out their latest at mvmt.com. Go to mvmt.com slash WRH. Join the movement. Before her death, Buffalo Calf Roadwoman was fighting alongside her brother and husband in the hills of North Dakota, trying to keep her family and people alive. It was 1876. From May to November of that same year, the United States is throwing a party in Philadelphia. Well, really, a big expedition. America is celebrating 100 years since the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Said one historian, a century of incredible progress and achievement. America survived the Civil War, built rails across the continent. This experiment of a democracy was working. The party is the Centennial International Exhibition. There are more than 200 buildings constructed. On display were many of the great American inventions. Alexander Graham Bell's first telephone was set up, to which the visiting Brazilian emperor tried out and immediately dropped the phone, crying, my God, it talks. Thomas Edison showed off his electronic pen. A steam engine was assembled on a platform, which none other than President Ulysses S. Grant tried out. It was a Steve Jobs iPhone launch presentation next to Spielberg doing a TED Talk on the history of cinema, with Oprah interviewing J.K. Rowling, and on a basketball court, people watching LeBron James play Michael Jordan in his prime. Some sort of VR technology meets player simulation science. Who knows? You'd have to ask Elon Musk. Yeah, Elon's there. Anyway, almost 10 million people come through over the course of these seven months. On July 3rd, an Illinois paper I found, the Daily Argus, said on the top of page one, Philadelphia is brilliant, with flags and patriot decorations and the streets everywhere are densely crowded, and there are constantly arrivals of strangers from all parts of the country. The paper added, there were governors from different states, together with crowds of other newly arrived celebrities. But then, only a day after this article was published and two days after the official 100-year anniversary, a telegraph came through. It read in part, George Armstrong Custer and 261 members of the 7th Cavalry have been massacred by Cheyenne and Lakota warriors near a river called Little Bighorn in Montana Territory. No survivors. Custer was dead at 37 years old. America shook. The party came to a halt. George Armstrong Custer dead? Custer was an American icon. He helped the Union win the Civil War. He was there when Robert E. Lee surrendered. They called it Custer's luck for a reason. Not to mention, as one historian would later say, the West was won. How could this happen? This was the sinking of the unsinkable Titanic. The script wasn't supposed to be written this way. The party turned into a melee. Fights broke out. Minorities were being shot and killed as some form of nonsensical retribution. People wanted to know, how did he die? And this part is important, because how he died has never been known. I can guarantee you some history buffs will write on our Apple comments section that whatever I say here is wrong. To make up for that, maybe you could say something nice. What is true 
Custer died in a battle that has become one of the most written about single events in American history. What do we know happened? Custer was preparing to attack a village of Native Americans. It was one of the battles I have spoken about during the Great Sioux War. Custer had heard warnings that the village they were attacking was prepared. He was scared they may scatter, and so he attacked immediately. He split his forces and attacked the camp from two sides. He was surprised that the warriors didn't take off. Instead, they counterattacked, and they drove Custer's forces back, leading to defeat. Ultimately, Custer and his brothers were dead. Said one publication, partially to regain the honor and prestige lost at the Little Bighorn, and partially to fulfill manifest destiny once and for all, the U.S. Army redoubled its efforts to overwhelm the Plains Indians. Waging total war, soldiers destroyed Indian homes, food, clothing, and supplies. They did not distinguish between combatants and non-combatants. The majority of the fighting was over within a year of Custer's death. Retribution would continue for years. In fact, 14 years after Custer's defeat, the 7th Cavalry surrounded a group of mostly Dakotas and killed about 150 of their people. Custer's early death, at just 37 years old, added to his legend. Herman Viola wrote that the battle has contributed much to the romantic lore of the West. There is one painting, in fact, that depicts the final moments of Custer's life. It's by Cassily Adams. Its title, and this is important to remember, Custer's Last Fight. It depicts the closing moments of the battle. Custer is right in the center of the action. He sports a signature buckskin jacket. He fights with a sword in his right hand and an empty revolver in his left, which he uses as a sort of club. But the Native Americans can sense defeat. Knocking out Custer's soldiers, some appear to be looting and scalping bodies. The painting is vivid, regardless of its accuracy. Also, this painting, like any book or film, leaves, perhaps, the biggest question unanswered. Who killed Custer? So sometimes I like to send out a free copy of my not best-selling book, My Adventures as a Young Filmmaker. In fact, if you sign up for our contributor program and seamlessly use the word stamps, I'll send you a free copy. And I'll do so using stamps.com. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Post Office right to your desktop. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. Then the mail carrier picks it up. No trips to the post office required. It really couldn't be easier. Stamps.com not only saves you time, it saves you money. I use Stamps.com because it's efficient. I'm all about efficiency. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. You know me and long-term commitments. I'm looking for one. Go to Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in WRH. That's stamps.com, enter WRH. The Battle of Little Bighorn is a mystery. Said groundbreaking author Herman Viola. People who have been working on this battle since the day it occurred, basically. It's, it's one of the most famous moments in American Indian history. It's one of the most misunderstood 
battles. It's full of stereotypes and mythology. And so there's just been a lot of scholars out there who've been trying to get to the truth of it. What really happened? How did it happen? Why did it happen? And so that's why there's been this amazing amount of research and analysis and the archaeological work that has gone on out there. I've tried to sort out some of the main reasons. First, like most of history, most of what is known about the battle is absent of the women involved. Rosemary Aganito told me... The people who went out west and tried to interview the Cheyenne and the Sioux, they were men, by and large. And they were interested in what the men were doing. Also for me, how is it possible... Knowing the importance of the battle and that the great General Custer died, is there still a misunderstanding as to what happened in the end? There were hundreds of people there. Herman Viola pointed out how perhaps those fighting for the U.S. government looked at it. The soldiers themselves, you know, there were court-martials, all that other stuff that followed after this, you know, who, who did what, why, when. And so, you know, no one wanted to get in a lot of trouble. They also didn't want to embarrass Custer, uh, you know, they didn't want to embarrass his his widow. She was, like I say, Jackie Kennedy at the time. So they didn't want to have things come out that would really embarrass her. You know, he, the idea that he had fathered an Indian child, for example, that, uh, you know, the, and there's, there's no doubt that, you know, after Custer and his men att- captured some Indians, they took a number of women also, uh, one of his officers in a letter said that each one of us has a, an Indian woman that, that be, take, takes care of us or we take care of them. So there was a lot of that going on. And so they didn't want to embarrass her. And so that's why stuff was kind of hidden. And just they thought, well, it all come out after she died, but she outlived most of those people. Also, the Northern Cheyenne people, like many tribes, didn't have a written language. Because of this, much of the United States' history has overlooked their perspective. We had a number of drawings by Indians, and a number of them were, you know, drawings of the little Battle of the Little Bighorn. And so, uh, you know, that is really primary resource, even though they say Indians didn't write, but they drew, and they drew their history, and they recorded it very vividly. And so... There's the Indian side of the story, and then there's the non-Indian side. There's also a larger reason we perhaps haven't heard the side of Native Americans that were fighting against Custer and his troops, said Viola. They tell, you know, they weren't, they didn't have a written language, and so there were people in the communities that were their job was to carry on the, the traditions and keep the stories alive. And you have these calendar histories when you look at them that there are people that when, you know, each year they would pick the key event that was important for that community. And so these oral histories are retained in the communities, but they are not meant to be publicized or used by others. And so it's really quite unusual to get kind of this openness for because Indians are not, they're not arrogant. Indians are very private, and they uh, are humble, and they don't like to brag on themselves or others, and so that's why they just kind of keep a low profile, even in the U.S. military today. And people don't realize this, but 
by ethnicity, Indians are the largest representative in our armed forces. And, but you hardly would know that because they don't brag about it, they don't talk about it, but they're a warrior people and they, it means a lot to them to carry on these warrior traditions protecting the homeland. So oral histories are really important. There also remains the fear that should anyone speak negatively of Custer, there could be a vicious response. There has been in the past. It doesn't take long into reading Viola's book that you begin to see one reoccurring word, retribution. Native Americans didn't want to tell their side of the story. For many reasons, one being it was too dangerous. Viola chronicles many who speak to this. Jesse Kills Close to the Lodge said, There are things that books tell that are not true. I guess Indian people were scared to tell. Said Johnson Holy Rock, One reason was that they didn't want to be identified as hostiles for fear of retribution or retaliation. Eagle Hawk explained, Everything went underground and people just didn't want to bring them out. Even people that were at the Battle of Little Bighorn. If they had a rifle, they hit it. They wouldn't even sing the victory songs until the 1920s and 1930s. To be clear, that's over 50 years after the battle. They were afraid of retaliation. What might happen to them? One of the final pieces I learned as to why Native Americans were quiet about what happened, humility. Whether it's Native Americans themselves or the authors and historians who have attempted to better understand their history, there is a deep-routed humility. With each interview I did, inevitably who I was speaking to would suggest I talk to someone they thought would be better suited to talk about this topic. I can assure you, this doesn't always happen. This is why it was so hard for Joseph and Rosemary to write a biography. One of the tragic things that that has happened in the last 30 years is there have been a lot of those oral histories that were carried by elders and there were no younger people who expressed the dedication to the story and the language in order to to learn those and carry them forward. So much, if not most, and almost certainly most of the oral histories have been lost because they've been so carefully preserved. I thought more about the Northern Cheyenne and their humility. You have a few Indian lawyers out there now, but you know, they just really are humble people, not aggressive. They don't push their way into anything. And so that's why you don't see them much on the news. And I think it certainly helped with that personality why the government was able to take advantage of them. It, it, the whole story about them is remarkable. You know, for example, the code talkers. Here, the very time we're trying to, in fact, we we're punishing Indian kids for speaking their language at school, in World War One and World War Two, it was their codes, their languages that enable us to really, you know, really in the Pacific fighting the Japanese, certainly with the Germans, to uh, come up with codes that were unbreakable. And so you have the ironies. On one hand, they, we're trying to take the Indianness away from them. On the other hand, it was their, their language that was so beneficial to us at crucial times in our history. In 2005, there was a gathering. Although not chronicled by the influential publications of our time, or really hardly any magazines or newspapers, this gathering, I think, changed history. It was July 22nd in Billings, Montana, 
and the sun was just beginning to set on another hot day. A group of Northern Cheyenne came together to tell a story. There were about 200 people in attendance. Frank Rowland, the night's MC, announced to the crowd, the chief said to keep a vow of silence for 100 summers. 100 summers have now passed, and we're breaking our silence. In fact, seeing as it was 2005, more than 100 summers had passed. Although I can't be certain, it could be for different reasons. I've tried reaching out to the tribe in earnest and can only take some educated guesses. Perhaps it's because of Custer's incredible following, the tribe remained fearful of some sort of retribution. I also look back at what happened 100 years ago. There was an interpreter for one of Custer's fellow generals, George Cook. This interpreter's name was Frank Gerard. For nearly 10 years, he lived with Native Americans, but then returned to living with non-Native Americans. He's documented to be there during the Battle of the Little Bighorn. He died in 1905, a century before those vows of silence were broken. But again, that's only a guess, and the point to this story is something far more important. Eugene Little Coyote, present at the gathering, said, We've been told we were the villains of history. No more. It's important for our young Cheyenne to know the truth. We want to share our history now. For the first time in public, they shared details of the Battle of Little Bighorn. They showed imagery that presented different moments of the battle. Some of the images were printed over old newspapers, which they found inaccurate or misleading. A man named Clarence Spotted Wolf spoke of his brave great-great-grandfather who fought at the battle and lost his left eye. But the biggest revelation, which I think changes history, is when they revealed who it was that knocked George Armstrong Custer off of his horse. Their history indicated it was Buffalo Calf Road Woman, a.k.a. Brave Woman. She put Custer on the ground. After falling, Custer was then killed. If it were not for Brave Woman, Custer may have gone on to live. Roland said, We have a moral responsibility to tell the truth. This is the Cheyenne truth. And so there you have it. Did Buffalo Calf Road Woman kill George Armstrong Custer? I was lucky enough to speak with Senator Ben Nighthorse Campbell. He was Senator of Colorado from 1995 to 2003, serves as one of 44 members of the Council of Chiefs on the Northern Cheyenne Indian Tribe. He was stationed in Korea during the Korean War and received several medals for his service. He's also just a cool dude. A turning point in my conversation was when Senator Ben Campbell relayed a conversation he had with the great Herman Viola. One time I asked Herman Viola about that. I said, well, you know, I mean, most people in America, they think in terms of written history must be more true than verbal stories handed down or verbal history. And he told me, no, one is just as acceptable as the other. I mean, one is as good as the other. There's a lot of stories written that are not true, and there's a lot of stories that are told that are not true or are true, you know, so you have to take it for what it is. The Northern Cheyenne treat their history as sacred like so many of us treat our own history. For me, after hearing about the hardly talked about 2005 Billings, Montana gathering, of course Brave Woman knocked Custer off his horse. Did she literally kill Custer? No, I don't think anyone is arguing that. There was two gunshots found in his chest. But she is the one that knocked him off. And when you think about it, whether she meant to or not, what a genius move. Shooting at Custer while on his horse 
never seemed to work. Whenever people did, it ended up killing his horses, and he'd get away. The whole time, nobody seemed to realize what they needed to do was knock the colonel off his horse. There are also clues peppered throughout the history books and oral history, and even in some of my conversations, that suggest, regardless of the 2005 revelation, that Custer died after being knocked off a horse. People on all sides of the spectrum seem to acknowledge this. Senator Ben Campbell told me... He was already dismounted off his horse, fighting on foot when he was actually killed. But I've also heard clues that maybe it's more likely a woman knocked Custer off. Campbell told me about the male soldiers. And to a lot of the people, they didn't know it was him. Uh, except for some of the women, and they knew it was him. And boy, they you don't want to get an Indian woman mad at you because some of those Indian women took their vengeance on him after he was dead. And don't forget what Rosemary told me. It's not like people were interviewing women. The people who went out west and tried to interview the Cheyenne and the Sioux, um, they were men by and large, and they were interested in what the men were doing. The age-old debate as to whether Custer is a hero reminds me of something I think about a lot, that a story can be happy or sad depending on when you want to end it. You could say, at the end of the Civil War, George Armstrong Custer is an American hero. By the end of his life, you could say he's an evil villain. History likely lies somewhere in between. Finally, I really do believe it's important to not judge the following, but instead important to understand it. This is ultimately the story of two different personalities, Buffalo Calf Roadwoman or Brave Woman and Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer. They lived very different lives. They never knew each other. And if they ever did meet, it may have been a brief moment of eye contact. For a tenth of a second, their lives intersected before one brought the other to the ground. The two were similar in many ways. Both were brave, both had families, both had intentions to do what they believed was right for their friends, family, and nation. There was also differences, some obvious and some less clear. Brave Woman was like her people in many respects, not interested in publicity, not interested in acclaim. The one photo taken of her is impossible to even verify. The man she helped kill was the opposite. Custer dressed to get attention. He studied photography to make sure he had the best pictures. Before being on brand was in the zeitgeist, Custer paid careful attention to his. I can only imagine the endorsement deals he would have landed. You may remember that painting I mentioned earlier by Cassily Adams called Custer's Last Fight. It was that vivid depiction of Custer fighting off everyone he could in his final moments, a sword in one hand and the other hand holding an empty gun, using it as some sort of club. That same year Custer died, in 1876, is when Budweiser was introduced. Anheuser-Busch Brewing was hoping to market these Budweiser beers to towns and cities all across the nation. So they acquired that famous painting. They wanted a man, a hero, at the center of their marketing campaign. Who could be better than Custer and his last stand? They originally sent more than 150,000 copies to bars, pubs, and other establishments around the country. Although it was hard for me to verify, some claim that other than Gilbert Stewart's portrait of George Washington, used for the $1 bill, no other American painting has been so widely distributed. The painting is one reason 
Budweiser became one of the first national beer brands in the United States. As it turns out, Custer kind of did get that endorsement deal. I don't love pulling quotes. It's so easy for them to be taken out of context. But after reading a lot about Custer, it does seem like this quote from him speaks to the value he placed on how he was perceived. Quote, my purpose is to make my narrative as truthful as possible. There are obviously different types of historical figures, whether evil or good, female or male, brave or cowardly, people who made a dent in history and are thus printed in our history books. As I try and better understand history, regardless of the moving parts that I have a tendency to judge, there's something at play I hadn't thought of. There are two types of historical figures to consider. There are those who are loud and those who are quiet. One isn't better than the other. Rosemary and Joseph Aguinito would go on to write a novel which is based on Buffalo Calf Roadwoman's life. It's called Buffalo Calf Roadwoman, The Story of a Warrior. It's an interesting, thoughtful, entertaining read. It really is. And I think this small section from the book sums up Brave Woman pretty well. It's about a time her husband, Black Coyote, was looking at her. Black Coyote fixed his gaze on the remarkable woman who had consented to be his wife five winters ago. Her dark eyes, high forehead and cheekbones, and her firm jaw stood framed by her straight black hair, parted in the middle and braided. Loose strands fell about her face now, wispy and disheveled from her ordeal. Her self-control made her seem fearless, although unmindful of her own safety. That worried him a little. Hardened by suffering, not much given to laughter and wise beyond her 23 years. Buffalo Calf excelled in many things. She was an outstanding shot, as good as anyone in camp, and a skilled rider. Although she sat quietly behind him, the coyote thought of her tall, slender figure, head carried high whenever she moved. But I do think the quiet heroes, no matter their accomplishments, are easy to forget. And we can't let them escape history if we want to understand what really happened. When What Really Happened returns after Thanksgiving, would Apple exist if Steve Jobs had never taken acid? It's going to be an amazing episode, but it's also quite serious. Jobs said repeatedly that taking LSD was one of the two or three most important things he ever did in his life. But was this a tale to galvanize press or a genuine belief? What really happened? <laughs> 